0: This presentation is from Design Research 2021, day one. So on that note, um, I would like to kick off this year's Design Research Conference. Um, we're very, very happy to have with us today Indy Young joining us from the US. Indy is a long-time um, advocate for design research, a long-time practitioner in this area. She has been a... Um, not only a strong advocate for the way in which uh, research is undertaken, but has put that both into practice and into words with her writing and her presentations. Um, As a founder of Adaptive Path, uh, she will be well known to this audience um, and also for her book, Mental Models, um, and subsequent writings. Indy, thank you so much for joining us and thank you so much for getting us started this year. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Steve. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. Hello, hello, hello. (laughs) I can't believe you're having someone from all the way over here start your conference.
0: We love it. (laughs) We love it. Yay! So, Indy, I'll hand over to you and... um, Take it away. thank you.
1: Okay, excellent. Well, your introduction was very uh, close to um, what I'm going to speak about. so I think that if I just go ahead and dive right in, everybody will see the connections and we can all get excited together because we're we're a really amazing community and um, and that's something that uh, we can we can celebrate amongst ourselves. Okay, thank you so. I'm going to talk to you about people, about purpose, about patterns, and about problem space and how we can um, shift the way we are supporting. Uh, humans as they are in the world. And I love the, the, that Steve said the word shift like 40 times in this intro, because that's what this is all about. And that's what we're going to be embarking on over the next 10 years together. We have been working on this together. Um, and there are a lot of people who have made significant um, uh, uh, inroads in this, and I'll be referencing some of them. Um, so, I just want to take us back to the beginnings of software. Software hasn't been around that long. That's why I'm kind of excited about this community because we haven't, as a community, been around that long. And In the beginning, software was just a way of doing calculations quickly. Um, It was a way of automating processes. We used to have people who were called computers who would do the calculations, most of whom were women, Um, but um, at least in the U.S. history that I've read. We were writing code in those days mostly for engineers, for the mathematicians, the people who were breaking codes in World War II. Um, There were That calculations being made for various space programs um visicalc came along and all of a sudden we had our first spreadsheet and it wasn't just the accountants who could uh use it the rest of us could probably use it too and we you know got software for procurement folks and we were writing chess playing games and (laughs) all of that so that was kind of the beginning of it Um, and uh, even as a kid, I was growing up, my dad, my f- best friend's dad in, in nursery school worked for somebody who was using computers and we would get to play with the little printed, uh, you know, the, the cards that they would feed to the computers. So it was, it was, um, it was I don't know, exploratory. It was interesting. It was uh, going new places, innovation, right? Um, and at the time, it, the software engineer's job was just to encode the process. Um, So essentially, uh, the idea was just to go out and study from, that's where the subject matter expert SME came from, go study that subject matter expert, um, how the process is done, and then just like make that process into code. Uh, That's what we were doing. Um, so then we decided to prioritize, you know, user friendly, which was a euphemism for um, it's not so easy to use, <laughs> um, and more usable, right? So uh, user centered even came about, and we studied then how well the process worked. For users. So now we started inviting people into the equation that we were using. Um, And then we decided to uh, prioritize user experience and some methods like agile and um, design thinking and jobs to be done. And now the process has all of a sudden expanded to almost encompass anything a person wants to get done. I mean, we're able to uh, make a loan to somebody of a small amount um, around the globe uh, from a, somebody we don't know at all. We're, we're able to um, compose music. We're able to do uh, you know uh, designs in 3D space that people can walk through. Um, so we can, we can do a lot of things, but we can also do a lot of the things that we used to do in the real world, such as the thing we've, all of us privileged people, been able to do lately, which is um, order our groceries to be delivered. (laughs) Um, So a lot of the things that we do, both in terms of using machines, but in terms of our normal lives, have become a part of this. Um, And I am going to make the statement that we still look at how that solution is being used. Um, And I'm here to help us put words around what we need to do to get to the next age, the next digital age, which is to make a shift to studying people. Okay, so around the same time as this, along came the business models. And uh, lots of money because now we were making software for lots of people and it was possible to make a lot of money and all of a sudden zillionaires started appearing and there's a lot of power associated with that and the power became very shiny and attractive to people and and the people who were in power were making it very attractive to come and work for you, like if you were at Google or Apple or Facebook or Amazon. Um, and so these, they call them GAFA Or maybe I'm pronouncing it the wrong way, but um, that is kind of how those grew. And those companies are in the business of supporting their users, the advertisers. The rest of us, we're a bunch of humans that the advertisers can put ads in front of. We are the eyeballs, right? That was how we referred to it <laughs> um, a couple of years ago, and um, and the the data that's getting harvested from us now is uh, ast- astronomical. It's amazing what is uh, what's being uh, created um, just to you know, sense us. Like a nest um, is the thermostat and it's there so it can sense what we're doing in our house. The Alexa is, I don't know what an Alexa is for, play the radio, I guess. Um, and it's there to sense what we're doing in the house. Um, and so, it's kind of like all of this is catching on fire. Um, and uh, indeed, Jaron Lanier um did a TED Talk about how, you know, in the very beginning, we wanted the internet to be free. We wanted everyone to have access. And unfortunately, the model we choose, uh, we chose back then was the model that broadcast television was using, which is advertising. We chose advertising so that we could make it free for everybody instead of using a different approach, like, you know, all of us paying for it together in terms of taxes or something. Um, and unfortunately now, the advertisers are disintermediating every single thing that we're doing on any one of those platforms, um, and those platforms start to measure things um, in ways that are self-serving. You know, oh, are those people that we're harvesting data from? Are they delighted? <laughs> good, then we can keep harvesting data from them. Um, are they engaged? Are they looking at the glass? You know, at us through that little piece of glass? Oh, good. We want them to stare through that glass at us longer. Um, so we can serve more ads. The KPIs, the, the the ways that we measure even outside of those big four companies are organized by the company's goals. How well are we meeting our company goals? None of this is measuring a person's goal. And I think it's high time that we started. So um, there are, okay, so I'm going to pull us away from that GAFA fire because I don't know the answer there yet. Um, maybe I don't know what, what goes through people's heads, but maybe it's a great place to get a start, to put it on your resume, and then you sort of wake up to what they're doing <laughs> and you leave. Or maybe it's a very stable place and you've, uh, you need that stability. So I'm not quite sure how to solve for that, but I can solve for all the other companies that are out there. Um, and there are plenty of them. There are a lot of them in biotech in pharmaceuticals and healthcare. There are a lot of them in insurance. There are in finance. They are founders and startups. Um, If I haven't mentioned your type of company yet, um, please put it in the chat so I can mention it. (laughs) Um, But these companies make money to sustain themselves over time so that they are successful enough to keep being there to create solutions for more people. That's why they're there. They're creating solutions for people. All those people who are creating the vaccines for us, they're, they're not doing it necessarily just to make money. Yes, they need to make money to pay for all the research that's being done. And yes, there are probably a layer of executives in there that are being paid way too much money. Um, and I don't know how to solve for that either, but we're working on it. Um, <laughs> we're still, though, even within those really cool orgs, thinking of our users as typical of the market. And so that makes that like we're we're thinking like we're designing for the the biggest part of the market, that, that part of the bell curve with the most area underneath it. And these are also people who have a certain way of being in the world who might get their groceries delivered, who might make a loan uh, to someone who wants to raise more corn in uh, a country on the other side of the globe. Um, And this is something I want to talk a little bit about. First of all, I want to say, you know, that market, right now, it's being defined the way market research has worked for the past 100 years. It's being defined by demographics, by roles, by job performers, by the solution that's being offered. It's not being defined by people. And then there's those little low parts of that curve that are referred to as edge cases. Edge cases is a, a phrase from back when we used to make software that were process encodings. And someone would encode the process and then like, okay, well, what are all the ways that you know the process goes like a little bit different? And then let's make sure we encode that too. And those were edge cases. Well, there is not a human on this planet that is an edge case. So so this is not a very helpful way for us to look at this. It's just the way that we have been looking at it. So let's let's look at what's underneath this briefly. Um, We have centuries of history that have built up sort of the the way that we are now, the way that we think about business now. The first one I want to mention is this oral tradition. It used to be that when we talked to one another, when we shared knowledge, we would do it person to person or person to group. There was a human involved. And then we started writing things down and then printing came along. And hot on the heels of printing literacy, which has always been a good thing because more people can know things. However, it's all through a page, not a person. So there is a difference there. We started losing that um, importance of forming some sort of connection with a person. That become less and less and less important. In fact, when you read newspaper articles, do you know who wrote them? <laughs> right. Um, so uh, the, the some folks say that social media, some folks say things like podcasts and Twitter um, are, are making the oral tradition come back because there's a connection to a person, even though it's like through a glass or through some headphones. Um, so. Interestingly enough, the scientific method also started around when the printing press was going on. And this method was all about like, how are we going to gather the truth? And this is the truth about the actual natural world, things that exist, hard science. And so they started developing the scientific method around then, and it got intertwined with our understanding of truth and written truth. And now, <laughs> if you, you know, it, you, you get words like hearsay, right, which means something negative. Oh, that's just hearsay. It's not true. Um, you get things like newspaper articles that say, oh, look, they did this um, research, and these were the results, and they were really surprising. And so, I'm going to spend the rest of my article guessing what they mean. And that is what we accept. I've seen TED Talks where a researcher talks about the way he did research, um, which was, wow, (laughs) it was not framed correctly. Um, I I talk about that in some of my other talks, so I'm not going to do it in this one. Um, But just say there's a lot of it out there and beginning to recognize it, beginning to recognize how it all sort of curled up together and then curled up with capitalism and the uh, always, always ongoing colonialism. (laughs) Um, And that's kind of how we find ourselves today. There are more systems today than just what I've mentioned so far. Um, No one system is in itself inherently good. I mean, even a democracy can make really bad decisions. <laughs> We've seen that. Um, in that middle column, there with the paternalism and racism, or, or rather colorism and, and feminism and castes, and you know the way the academia speaks about things, which is a totally different language than the way the journalism thinks uh, people th- uh, talk about things. Um, it's just like. There's a lot of conflict between these things. And what we as humans try to do is see patterns and connect. And so what we're doing is we're trying to connect truth with written word. And it's very interesting because we end up with this in our businesses. We end up with this in our operations. We end up with this um, in the ideas of how there's people at the top that make all the money and then the people at the bottom do all the work. Um so it's interesting. Um and there we go. Now my slides are clicking again. Um so the problem is is that we like I said we're still solving for the typical user using one way of being in the world. It is that way that we understand from having grown up in these systems. Our parents grew up in these systems. Our grand- grandparents grew up in these systems. Their great-grandparents grew up in some versions of these systems. Um, it's called systemic, right? Um, and so we we are privileged to be people who get to make decisions about building things, about making solutions, and we are swimming in this, and some of the time we don't recognize it. All we, uh, all I'm going to talk about now is how to recognize it and what to do about it. <laughs> so we're fish. We're all these little fishes swimming around in this system. And even though there's like one fish that's a white male, we don't like go blame the white male fish, right? Um, even though there's one fish that that um, is like launching slurs at people, um yeah, we okay, we'll blame that fish. <laughs> but we're all swimming in it together and if this is our little community what we are about to do is help recognize that we're swimming in water. Help each other recognize that we're swimming in water. It's not we didn't make the water. We're swimming in it. Okay? So that's what we're helping each other recognize. That's how we're supporting each other. And we're also helping each other see outside of that bowl and see other ways of being in the world and bring that to the rest of our organization. That's the hard part, actually. That's the tricky part. Um, But I think we can do it. Uh, So, yes, here we are in the fishbowl looking out and seeing millions of people being ignored, feeling unwelcome, actually being harmed by some of the solutions we are making. It's not easy to think of. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of frustration out there, kind of mild harm. Um, You know, maybe my thinking style was not thought of, and so I have to think of a workaround to use this tool to get done the thing that I want to get done. or actual harm, like I'm not even trying to look and see if what I have done is going to have an unintentional outcome for someone or or completely ignore them, um, tell them that they're not welcome here, or even call them hard to reach. We get phrases like that, like that phrase, underserved. Have you heard that? Do you you hear that in your organization? Um, (laughs) Interestingly enough, that word comes from our system. The system point of view says, oh, there's some people outside the system that are underserved by us. And Arlen Hamilton, who is a uh, founder of the Backstage Capital venture firm, um, she uses the word underestimated instead of underserved. And I really love that word, underestimated, because that gives the human back their dignity. That gives the human back their self-respect. It's a positive way of speaking about it. Um, And it also is starting to recognize that there's water and there are other things outside of water. Okay, so here's a little example of mild harm. We run across this stuff ourselves, even as the privileged, every day. So this is just an ad for some company that sells wine and brings it to your drawer, I think. Um, And they're all like, what's your favorite chocolate? How do you take your tea? What's your favorite juice? What's your go-to cocktail? Um, And like, if you don't consume any of those or many of those, you'll be like, okay, well that's not for me no matter what they're selling. (laughs) Right. Um, Or if you're the kind of person who philosophically doesn't really have favorites, um, you know, like, I don't know, I don't one. So how, how do I engage with you? Maybe I do want some of this uh, wine, but I don't know how to engage with you because I don't have favorites. Okay, so it's just not checking. And this is totally mild harm. There's, there's serious harm. This is where we're getting more and more in our cars, these um, smooth touchscreens. And research is showing that drivers have to take their eyes off the road longer To be able to find the control that they're after and adjust it and see the feedback because we're using it like we would use a phone. Um, And yeah, sure, there are plenty of people who walk around with their face in the phone. They walk into the crosswalk with their face in the phone. (laughs) But anyway, um, Mazda actually came out with a car this year that has a touch screen, but you interact with it using buttons and dials. And yes, of course, there's a hack. Everybody wants to know the hack to actually get the touch screen to work. So anyway, uh, touch screen, shiny, yes, but harmful, yes. Um, there's also systemic harm. And this is a picture of Joy Buolamwini when she was a MIT uh, grad student studying, testing facial recognition software. She could not get it to recognize her face. It turned out because of dark skin and also female features. She was behind the effort to get this notice out. She runs the Algorithmic Justice League. And... She managed to get several cities around the world so far to take the automatic facial recognition software out of their CCTVs. Nonetheless, it's still in a lot of CCTVs. I think um, IBM and Microsoft also stopped developing this software. Um, There have been four cases in the United States where individuals have been arrested and put in jail. Because of the software identification, the cops come, arrest the person, marsh them off, don't like look at their face, I guess, and see that it didn't really match. And they were all innocent. I mean, that's harmful. That's systemic harm. So um, humans are fully human. We have a lot of different ways of being in the world. Um, as a little decoration on this slide, I put a lot of brains, minds, and hearts for feelings. But you know, it's a body part too. Um, I was going to put eyeballs, but the eyeballs looked kind of funny. <laughs> um, so we we have these. Not everybody has eyeballs uh, that work really well. Not everybody has a brain or a heart that works super super well. But this is the stuff that makes us human. I'll get to that in a little bit here. And we can study humans instead of studying the process or the solution. And this is the way that we're going to level up and get our software less harmful. So you may go like, wait a minute. Okay, yeah. Humans are myriad. We are complicated. We change our minds all the time. We even change our guiding principles when the mood suits. You know, how do you study humans? You can't, I mean, you can, yes, but that's called psychology, right? Um, So, you can, for our purposes, for creating support for people, when we frame the human by their purpose. I have been doing studies like this for a couple of decades now, framing by their purpose. And this allows us to create valid data with patterns in it that we can then apply to the work that we're doing and also measure our work. So let's take a look. Um, If we can shift our focus to the people's purpose when we do our studies. What we're going to do is get a lot of richness out of it, a lot more breadth, a lot more understanding. I've got like a billion more slides to help explain that statement. First of all, what's a purpose? Um, Is what a Person is aiming for it's their intent. I love that word intent, but sometimes it confuses people. Maybe you could call it an objective or what they want to accomplish or achieve, but maybe they're just starting to plan it, or maybe they're daydreaming about it, or maybe they're procrastinating and putting it off, or just making progress on it. And maybe it's something that will never end. Um, and they're just always making progress on it, like you are with your career. That's a purpose. Purposes come at lots of different levels of granularity, but they're not a job. (laughs) They're not a need either. Need and job are business-focused, solution-focused questions about a person's purpose. Desired outcome comes closer to the idea of purpose, but... um, not the way I've seen it used (laughs) in jobs to be done. So a purpose is just, it's a state that a person is trying to make exist. Um, And they may not be trying very hard yet. (laughs) And it may be at a really small granularity or a large granularity. Here's a bunch of examples. So X, I have an X and X broke (laughs) and I need to be doing Y. So I need to either like fix or work around or replace X. So let's say that X is my refrigerator and Y is a dinner party because like maybe it's a few months from now and cross your fingers the pandemic is over and everybody's got the vaccine. Yeah, a few months. I'm deluding myself. Okay. So anyway, dinner party. (laughs) Um, So my refrigerator broke. What am I going to do? Well, you know, the first thing I'm going to do is probably call my neighbor and see if they have any room in their um, fridge so that I can put my stuff in there and have the dinner party. And then uh, go get a fridge after the dinner party or something. Or maybe I'll just cook it all up right now and it'll be a, a, you know, pre-created dinner party. (laughs) Um, But it could, X could also be your phone. Maybe my phone broke. And maybe why is I have to pick up the kids, uh, and they're back in school now, uh, and uh, you know there's something weird about the end of the day schedule, so I'm not sure what time or where I'm supposed to pick them up. And so we we're just going to communicate by phone. So what am I going to do? Yeah, maybe I could run to the store and pick up a phone, if you're that kind of thinking style, um, or you could maybe. Uh, go to your neighbor again, <laughs> borrow their phone, <laughs> ask somebody else to set up some sort of a signal, right? There's a lot of different ways that you can accomplish that that kind of purpose. The second one, my pet isn't eating and I'll do anything to get them to eat. Um, one of the ways of doing that is to think, oh yeah, they love that evaporated milk when I was using that last Christmas. And so I think I still have a can of that down in the basement I'm gonna run down there and get it and, and give it to the pet, Right, See if they'll eat it. Or maybe I'll go to the pet store. okay? Um this third one, i'm ha- I'm unhappy with how I'm perceived. So I resolve to change. That's a purpose. That's a really big purpose. That purpose is gonna take a while. Um, I'm using a new API and it isn't behaving how I expected, so I need to figure it out. Um figure out what's wrong or something. That's a purpose. Um I'm building my startup. And I need to balance like actually creating the solution and investigating and, uh, you know, doing some research around that solution um, with creating a culture of people that are working with me with finding an investor so that we can all get this work done and not starve to death. Um, Or this next one, make a reservation for a flight so that I can arrive in time for X. All, All of these are studies that I've done except for the one about the pet. <laughs> um, that one last, uh, the the reservation so I can get home in time for X was a, there was a woman who was going to a conference, a psychology conference, and she wanted to get home in time for her daughter's first piano recital. I think that's what they call them. <laughs> anyway, um, and there was a delay. And so I'll All sorts of things happened. Um, Anyway, uh, the um, last one, get a good seat for the flight. That is sometimes a part of making the reservation, and it also sometimes comes back again later. What does good mean? Hmm, here's a little peek at the data. I'm going to show you more of this later. This is get a good seat for the flight. This is a mental model diagram. You can see three groups here. The first group is figure out whether that seat is good. Um, Worry that I won't get the seat I want uh, the next great big group uh, Choose a seat that allows me to do what I need to do. And in there, we have people who um, you know, want an aisle seat because I have to get up and down a couple times because I get a backache if I sit too long, or I want an aisle seat because I go to the bathroom a lot and I don't want to climb over everybody, um, or I want a window seat because I want to le- lean up against uh, the side of the plane and sleep better that way. Um, Or I want the aisle seat because I'm claustrophobic um, or I want a seat with room for my laptop or my baby or, you know, all these different things. So there's a lot of things that people want out of a seat. (laughs) and We collect them and we find the patterns. So let me get into that a little bit in in a couple more slides. Um, But what we do when we collect this data is we ask, what went through your mind the last time you were pursuing this purpose and the time before that. Um, And we ask people in a way that they can tell us their inner thinking, their emotional reactions and their guiding principles. That, we're back to this slide with the brains and the hearts. Um, (laughs) Those are the core pieces of being human. This is all that's at depth. These are the, the things that happen when you are forming cognitive empathy with somebody. You understand their inner thinking. You understand their emotional reactions. And you understand their guiding principles. And this is extremely Rich, it's not the surface level opinions and preferences, um, needs, right, Uh, to to force somebody to speak to you in in your words instead of their words. Um, It allows you to understand more than just an explanation, but what actually went through somebody's mind. So let's explain purpose in one other way as well. So this is a person in the center of this ring. And this person has a purpose. It looks like a plant, so maybe they're gardening. Um, And they have a thought bubble for inner thinking. They have a heart for their emotional reactions. They have a little scale for their um, guiding principles, because guiding principles are what you use to help you decide things. Um, And that, in that area where they're pursuing their purpose, is called the problem space. In a ring around them are all the tools that they can use in the problem space. And so they might, as they're doing this gardening, be chatting with their neighbor about, you know, some sort of bug that's eating their plant and their neighbor has the same bug and maybe they can learn something together. Um, Or they chat with somebody down at the nursery about a new kind of plant that won't get eaten by those bugs. (laughs) Um, So that's represented by the little figure with the the speech bubbles in um, in the ring over here. Maybe they're remembering something that they were taught at the university. and uh, about bugs, or maybe they they look it up in a book, or they remember it from some time that their grandmother told them about it, or they look on YouTube about it, um, or maybe what they're doing is just putting on some music while they're doing their purpose. Um, there's there's mechanical tools that they use. There's manual tools that they use, and there might be also digital tools that they use. And behind every single one of these tools is an organization except the neighbor and the brain, right? Um, There's no organization behind those. But each organization is intent on supporting that person in the way that they know how. So, the, the organization that's the university was intent on trying to teach this person about growing things and about pests that eat the things that you're trying to grow. (laughs) Um, Maybe this person is trying to grow more vegetables because their neighborhood um, is close to an area where uh, people can't grow a lot of vegetables and they can bring people vegetables um, when they need them, fresh vegetables. Um, What's happening, though, is that each one of these orbs has a different view of this person, like the, the, the tunes. Uh, they have a special way of looking at this person, and they're not really looking at that person's purpose. They're looking at that person's use of their tunes. Um, down at the bottom, we've got some sort of digital app. Let's say it's our org's digital app for growing things. And we're only looking through that aperture at that person. We're looking through the lens of our product at that person and only considering the things that our product would do um, in support of them. So, um, one of the things that's sad <laughs> to think is that there are still some companies out there that put themselves at the middle and they put like all the demographics around them of, from the market. Uh, and they're all like, oh yeah, okay. So those are the people around me and yeah, they're age seven, 50 to 75 and they love Hermes scarves and stuff. So, uh-huh. We can have a little laugh about that. I think we understand this. Not everybody understands this. Um what we find ourselves in the position of, though, is instead of a person doing their purpose at the center, we have a user or a customer or a passenger or a member or whatever other noun we use to refer to the person that we're trying to support through our aperture, through our lens. Okay? So this, you know if what's what's happening is we're taking away, all the rest of them and we're only putting this little paper model of them in place and we're not really looking at the purpose that they're trying to achieve okay so or rather we are looking at only the purposes that they're trying to achieve that our solution already supports okay What's interesting about that person is that person can have different thinking styles. Um, if we look at these, we've got maybe a, a sustainable and environmental kind of a thinking style as a gardener or maybe a commercial uh thinker, like maybe I want to ramp up my vegetables so I can feed more and more of those neighbors who who don't have places to grow their own or no time to grow their own. Um, Maybe I'm a a, a, a hobbyist. Maybe I like creating something that's beautiful, a beautiful, um, you know, window uh, planter that people can see when they're walking by kind of to give that little, you know, cozy feeling uh, of my house. Um, maybe I'm really time um, constrained and so I'm after efficiencies and what can I get done in the least amount of time? Um, Or maybe I'm looking at it uh, through a philosophy of like, hey, I'm not going to use any modern techniques, only the techniques that our uh, forefathers used. Um, People who came before us have been Uh, growing vegetables for millennia, so maybe there's something there. Um, Anyway, so different thinking styles is important because they apply to how you get your purpose done. Um, So if the problem space is the center of that little ring and the solution space is the ring around it, there are different thinking styles. And if we look not only at that person through our lens, but directly at that person trying to achieve their purpose both looking at it as part of the solution space and looking at it as part of the problem space, then we're going to get a much deeper sense of a person. Okay, so the number of purposes, though, you might be saying to yourself, is vast. (laughs) Um, Obviously, if your tool is uh, designed to help somebody doing gardening, you're not going to Be interested in that person's uh, purpose with regard to um, identifying birds, necessarily. A bird is different than a plant. Um, But even within gardening, there's a lot of different purposes. And so, stakeholders are like, oh, my God, we can't do it all. So, you know, let's not do any of it. Um, Or they're just not aware of it. Um, And so, what we do is we think of it as one of those really long purposes, It's never going to be done. We get started. We get a little bit of information that's of priority right now, and we work with it. We get a little bit more another year later, and we work with it. We get a little bit more two years later. We get that, and we work with that. And we ask ourselves at each juncture, what is the knowledge that we need if we have stakeholders telling us, hey, go do this study, we can ask that question again. Well, what is the knowledge we need? Let's make sure I understand what knowledge we need out of this because I, we might together then change how we do the study or what the study is about. Um, and then what's the risk of not knowing? Maybe we don't have to do this study. <laughs> um that That's a thought. Um, but if it is a risk not knowing, then, yeah, we do need to go create that data and understand what's going through people's minds so that we can support them better. So we'll go and do that, sketch it in, fill in those details, and the rest of it's still pretty blank, okay? So I wanna talk about a little bit about data collection techniques. And um, here I've got this big giant gray thing, which is the elephant in the room. This is market research and market research has been going on for a century. And it is one of those systemic things that we live in that a lot of the way that we speak about knowledge is guided by. Um, Come come along to what we're doing. We've got generative and evaluative. Generative is helping create ideas, come up with ideas. Evaluative is judging the ideas that we've had, judging the prototypes. How well are they actually supporting the person in achieving that person's purpose? Um, and there's also another one called Opportunity Research. It's, um, it's trying not to think of ideas yet, but get the lay of the land and understand um, kind of what's out there. What are the possibilities? Where can we go? Um, all of these can be framed by a person's purpose, you can frame your studies, your evaluative studies, your usability studies by a person's purpose, and I'll show you at the very end of this how to do that. Um, but what's coming at the other end of it? You're going to laugh because I don't know market research, and the only thing I can think of to put as coming out the other end of market research is targeting, um, which in and of itself is a kind of violent word. (laughs) Um, But what we're we're getting out of our opportunity research, um, which is also, I I didn't mention it, but it's um, akin to futures research in the ethics arena, Um, generative research and and fellowship research is to be able to examine those dark valleys where we hadn't really paid attention before, where we might be doing harm, where we might be causing unintended consequences, where we might be ignoring people and be able to reverse that, to reverse our own bias or our own sort of not knowing that we're swinging around in this systemic water, just to become a little bit more aware, again, it's going to last for uh, our entire career to accomplish this. Um, here is a diagram I've been working on for several years uh, with all of you, um, and uh, so feel free to give me comments. Um, I think that this deck is going to be available to you. I don't know when, um, but it should be available to you. But this particular diagram is on my Twitter feed, so you can go look at it if you want. Um, but it just has the opportunity research, the generative research, the evaluative research, little definitions, the idea that we start with a person's purpose. Um, and all those little gold bars are our data collection techniques and kind of like what purpose they serve and, and where they sort of span, where they sit between qualitative and quantitative, um, and even where... Oops, I went wrongly. even where they sit within like user research versus uh, UX, I mean, UX research versus usability research or versus big data. Um, and the, what's uh, interesting is people tell me that they print this out and they take it with their team. They're like, Oh yeah, we do this, this, and that. And this would be really helpful to us, but we've not been able to do this. Why? Well, that's an interesting question. Or they take it to their um, stakeholders and say, well, you keep asking us, for surveys, but we think that this other thing here and here, these are going to get us that knowledge in a deeper way. So, let's try some. Um, It's been helpful to people. Um, And what comes out of the end of this? (laughs) What comes out of it? I've got two parts here, solution space and problem space. Um, And what what comes out of it helps you spin those cycles that you're in. Let me actually show you a bigger version of that diagram so that we can examine it. In the solution space is where we have our you know agile process or our continuous dual track process or whatever. We're we're spinning around trying to come up with ideas and prototype them and put them into the product backlog or whatever or make a scenario for them or whatever, um, and then sticking them into product development. I did not draw this. This is you know some process that we all are ending up using, and this is where we refer to somebody as a user or a passenger or a member or whatever other noun we use to connotate that they have a relationship with us or a potential relationship with us. Okay, we're looking at them through the lens of the solution. Um, Usually, our research here is constrained. We have to hurry because it's got to fit within those spinning cycles. Over in the problem space, this where we're looking at people. This is where we're doing opportunity research. This is where we're trying to get the lay of the land, where the land is the people. How are they thinking their way through to this purpose? How are they accomplishing it? Um, we come at it, not through the lens of the solution, but just through the lens of the purpose. And out of it comes an opportunity map, which is a mental model diagram with some stuff underneath, which I'll show you in a bit, and thinking styles, which I'll also show you in a bit. Um, And this happens once a year, Mm, once every two years. This is the thing where we're sketching in a little bit more depth, a little bit more detail, a little bit more detail as we go. And this is finally going to allow us to have that slice in the middle, the strategy slice become set in realistic data so it's not just the ceo's idea of what we want to do next in our strategy it's actually coming from data so yes we make time for this it does not fit within the spinning cycles and i just want to call your attention to that verb make because make is one of the uh, words that's dear to our hearts and you know what that verb means (laughs) um Okay, so that's all about people and purpose and the problem space. So what about patterns I promised in the title of this talk that I would talk about that? Um, And so to get patterns, first of all, you have to frame your study. You have to frame your study so that patterns have a chance to emerge. You have to frame your study so that people will have done some thinking about this particular purpose that you want to explore. Right? You can't just go like here in the US, all the startups are like, oh, I'll just take my prototype down to Starbucks. <laughs> I'm like, well, probably nobody there has the purpose that you built that prototype for. Oh, no, everybody uses this. <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, so, anyway, I mean, maybe you could <laughs> ask people recruiting questions in Starbucks and at least do that. Um, but that's the first thing you do to get patterns. Second, you listen to people. Listening is different than an interview. In a listening session, you are not an explorer. You don't have that sense of like, I'm going to go there into this foreign place, this other person's mind, and I'm going to come back with a discovery, with the riches, with the colonial riches. Ah, That's our systemic water affecting our thinking again. So, let's not think of ourselves as an explorer, but someone who is there to witness this other person, someone who is there to make the other person feel heard, to make a connection with that person. You start a listening session by asking a germinal question, which is what went through your mind the last time you were trying to achieve that purpose, and then you follow them wherever they take you because it's associated to that purpose for them. You don't bring up other things that they haven't brought up. You don't even bring up vocabulary that they haven't brought up. In fact, I I have a fun game where we just speak in terms of what the other person has said. <laughs> That's the only words you can use. So, the idea is to pay rapt attention. That's where your cognition is so that you can build trust, so that they feel safe to talk to you, to talk to you at depth. And you can sense where there are areas that might be more depth and, and, and allow them to go there or encourage them to go there and form a connection, a human connection, that connection that we had back with the orality. Um, so for research, I have always done this audio only because there's a super amazing intimate connection that you can form that way. I talk about that in other venues. We don't have time today. (laughs) Um, But I also wanted to mention uh, for one second that listening is not something you do all the time. It is like a very heavy hat and you consciously put it on, you listen, and when it gets too heavy, you can't listen anymore. You find your mind doing other cognition than those four things that I listed, Um, and you know you're done. You take the hat back off again. You give yourself a break (laughs) because if you were training like with weights, you would never just like lift the weights until you die. (laughs) That's not how you get better. You put it on for a little bit, and then you take it off. Um, So, that's a good analogy to use. Um, The third step is to analyze the data in a way that helps us get aware of our own biases, that helps us stay aware of that systemic water, that helps us get past that. And most of the time, I see people coding transcripts with insights. Like those are the actual insights that are going to pass along. And that's compressing all of that analysis into one step that does not work and allows rich, ripe... uh, fields for your bias and unconscious assumptions to come out. So there's two steps to the way that I do analysis. And the first step is to just pull the concepts out of a transcript. What were they trying to say? And I'm only pulling concepts at depth, inner thinking, emotional reactions, guiding principles, those three things. And then I summarize each one of those and then I look at each of those across the transcripts and say, well, which ones have affinity for each other based on the person's focus of mental attention? Here are a couple of examples of summaries. They're written in a certain format so that I can be that person, so I can act that person when I say these out loud. This is cognitive empathy. You can see those in data text form starting to build into different groups by affinity of mental attention. This next picture is the same data, but in diagrammatic form. And what you're seeing here looks like a city skyline. This is the mental model diagram. And the city skyline has a bunch of towers in it. And each tower has a bunch of windows in it. And those windows are those summaries. Those are those words from the people that represent the inner thinking, the emotional reactions, the guiding principles, and how they came together to form a tower. And the towers came together to form a block in your city skyline. And the blocks come together even to form neighborhoods in your city skyline. And then you can add thinking styles. So let me super quick uh, give you a little – Intro to thinking styles, this is so quick that you're going to go like, whoa, what happened? Um, You get the thinking styles from the same data, but uh, in an orthogonal way. And I call them thinking styles simply because personas has a dual heritage of market research and uh, Cooper and Kim Goodwin informed. Um, Therefore, personas get misused or miscreated. Um, So I just wanted a different word. If personas is a better word for you to use, use the word personas to represent archetypes or thinking styles. Um, So thinking styles are a kind of archetype and they are specifically a way that a person philosophically approaches their purpose. Okay. Um, It's based on the research patterns. And... Any person can switch contexts and switch thinking styles. So within the airline, I did, uh, gosh, I don't know, 19 months worth of work with them. We did 100 participants, and we found four thinking styles, you know, validated over that time, Um, one of which was the thinking style that you would use uh, if you were going on a business trip versus a different thinking style that you might use if you were taking your toddler on a trip. So that's what I mean by philosophic approach. Now, there's a little asterisk here. Um, demographics-free is really important. Um, demographics have tended to get used as shorthand for people's inner thinking, for people's you know emotional reactions, for people's guiding principles. And that's wrong and that's harmful. Not all demographics get used that way, but that is surefire the way that you see it used in in our media, in um, our own research reports, (laughs) if they come up. Um, So what I do is I try to avoid demographics entirely unless inner thinking is caused by discrimination or emotional reactions is caused by discrimination or one of the other ones like physiology or culture or environment. Okay, so it does play a part. Here's an example of some thinking styles. There's three of them here. The purpose was trying to lose weight. We have three different thinking styles, the resigned, the sidetracked, and the inconsistent. And we have three different solutions, sets of solutions. These were made by a company named Healthwise uh, for a client of theirs who was trying to come up with different ways that were tailor-made for different thinking styles. This is where we're headed. Okay, so... Below that diagram, then you get to map what you do in support of people to those towers. But not only that, also, you get to measure whether you're supporting one thinking style better than another thinking style within certain towers or within certain blocks or neighborhoods. This particular diagram is downloadable from my website. And what happened here was we had two thinking styles of which... The client was only supporting one. So that's interesting. Does that mean, do we need to hurry and go support the other one? Or does that mean, well, yeah, that's where we should be focused right now until we get really successful, and then we can work on the other one. Or, no, we'll never work on the other one. It's just not what we want to do as a business. Um, So it's, it's being really intentional. Okay, so in ten years, what I would love to see is that our algorithms can recognize the behavior of someone interacting with them and say, "Oh, hey, you know what? I think you are this kind of a thinking style. We already researched it. We already have, you know, a solution like for the resigned uh, weight loss." Um, thinking style. We have a solution for it. We're going to like ask if you want to go into that solution. Um, otherwise, we're going to say, no, nah, you're just getting the generic experience, <laughs> which we're not admitting right now. <laughs> um, anyway, last slide, basically. Um, there are lots of different ways to do metrics. Also, using uh, mental model diagrams and thinking styles. Um, And the one that I'm just going to talk about is the third one there, strength of support by thinking style. I think that's extremely important. I also want to show you this diagram. This was done, um, not this particular diagram, and this one is in Spanish. Um, But what a really large multinational company did was they had an intern, um, they, they started creating their usability tests based on towers. So they were framing it by the purpose in the tower and then sending back to the product owner happy faces or, or sad faces based on the results. And the product owners loved it. They're like, oh my God, I want to get a happy face. Um, so how do I make this happen? So that's what I'm talking about. We want to study people's purpose so that we can make different solutions for different thinking styles. And then we can measure how well we're supporting those people achieving that purpose. We get to build awareness. We get to build intentionality. It's going to be a part of what we do for each other and for others and within our organizations as friends, as help. Um, we get to model it for others. Um, and doing this connection, this oral connection, um, is a really important thing because a business really is a social thing the results, the insights that we get are really built socially from our data. And so this is what I'd like to see as the next step in our digital maturity. So that's it. This is the slide of where you can find me. Um, There's also a discount code up here for Rosenfeld Media Books, any Rosenfeld Media Books, not just mine. And I'm gonna turn it back over to Steve. Thank you all very much.
0: Indy, thank you so much. That was a, a wonderful way to kick us off. Thank you. Yay. Um, take note of that um, discount code. We'll, we'll make note and uh, write it down uh, and share it around later. But please join me in thanking Indy for that wonderful talk. Thank you so much.